As is so often the case, this episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. from the trunk <laughs> reading the stories that did make it i'm hillary b bisignax listeners i'm super excited to welcome back to the show sarah hollowell whose debut ya a dark and starless forest comes out later this month sarah welcome to the podcast once again thanks i don't know why i said that like that thank you um I'm happy to be here. I'm excited. And I'm excited to be here with the thing that actually happened. As, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've been, like, you know, in DMs and publicly following this since you got the announcement and, like, the cover and everything. Just so excited for this book to actually be coming into the world. And, uh, and terrified. Also terrified. <laughs> Also, ter- I mean, I'm not terrified. I know you're going to rock this, but, like, you're the one who has the book coming out, so you're allowed to feel whatever you want. Yeah. No, I, I would agree with that. So, uh, before we get started with uh, the reading, do you have anything that we need to know about this? Um, good question. <laughs> like, like, what do people need to know? I'm still new to, like, actually having to do promo of any kind for this book <laughs> um it's okay I, nobody listens to this show <laughs> i don't think that's true i see people talking about it so i feel like <laughs> at least i feel like people maybe do listen I, um, yeah no i think a, a, at least a couple people listen. um carlos listens i guess <laughs> oh my god he's puppet facing at me he does this thing where he just stares and his mouth opens, like, straight down like a marionette. It's <laughs> <sighs> terrible, Carlos. Why are you doing this? It's so terrible. Um, no, okay, so um, A Dark and Starless Forest is a YA contemporary fantasy um, coming out from Clarion Teen, which was very recently HMH Teen. Um, but they were bought by HarperCollins, so now they are Clarion yep. Teen. Um <laughs> That's what's going to stay on the spine and everything. Um, And it is about a young magical girl who lives in an isolated uh, lakeside house with several other magical teens and a couple of children. Yes. Um, And they are kind of being raised by this man who adopted them after their parents either like abandoned them or just disappeared in general because they they did not want to have magical children so now they live Mm -hmm. here and things are going fine-ish I guess (laughs) you'll see (laughs) until one of her sisters disappears Um, and the place I will be reading from is from the moment her sister disappears so which I would say is not a spoiler because I'm pretty sure all the summaries mention exactly which (laughs) sister disappears so I'm not too worried about it all right. Well, ready when you are. Okay. So this is from the second chapter. 
Jane is gone. I was having one of my regular nightmares. Just a few weeks before they left me with Frank, my mom showed me one of her favorite movies. It included a scene where a car falls off a bridge into water and the couple inside dies. It's a funny movie after that. One of them's a ghost. I think there's basketball involved. But I could never get rid of that image. Once I ended up at the lake house, it started showing up in my nightmares. I'm trapped in a car, unable to scream, unable to move. The car sinks into water hazy with blood. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes my parents are in the front seat, but they're unconscious and I can't wake them up. That nightmare often makes me cry out, and it wakes Jane. Instead of turning over and going back to sleep, she comes to me. She rubs my back in circles. She talks in a low, soothing voice about the farm she lived on in her other life. I inhale the same unscented lotion we all wear, but that still smells uniquely Jane, and eventually drift back to sleep. But Jane isn't in her bed, and she's not in mine, either. I sit up. I squint across the room, wondering if I'm not seeing her bed properly without my glasses. Jane, I whisper. The only answer is the steady hum of cicadas outside. She could be in the bathroom. I put on my glasses, get out of bed, and stick my head out of her door. The bathroom door down the hall is open and the light is off. Jane? I whisper again, even though I know she's not there. I slip down the stairs to check the living room. Sometimes Jane has trouble sleeping and she'll take to wandering. She'll work on whatever puzzle is taking shape on the living room floor or get a midnight snack. The nine flowers on the wall shelf glow enough for me to see that the puzzle of a sunny cliffside on the floor is half done and that Jane isn't here. I pause at the flowers and briefly touch Jane's warm camellia for comfort. I try hissing her name again, quieter now. I'm too close to Frank's part of the house. Even the small noise of her name rasping off my tongue brings anxiety close to the surface, vibrating just under my skin, subcutaneously. That's a good word, subcutaneously. <laughs> I only know one place left to try. I don't know why Jane would risk it alone, much less on a night when Frank is home, but where else could she be? I move away from the living room on mouse-quiet feet to the little twins' room. London and Olivia are asleep, and they're deep sleepers, thank God. I don't want to have to explain that Jane is missing, and I have to go down through the secret tunnel to the lake to try to find her. The little twins are smart, but too brave. They wouldn't let me leave them behind. They'd scrunch up their faces in determination, hold hands, and refuse to budge until I let them help me find Jane. I'm here for the wall nearest London's bed. I glance at her as I pass. The foot of her bed is covered in books. A pretty good sign that she definitely stayed up, even after Jane tucked her in. In sleep, her brow is unfurrowed, erasing that little worried frown she often has. The wall seems like nothing. Lavender and polka-dotted, it could be any bedroom anywhere. I put my hands on two dots spaced just far enough that the little twins have to stretch when they do it. If you didn't know what you were looking for, you'd never find it, but I do. The dots are soft and warm, as if someone has just been here. I want to believe that means Jane's fingers touched these same dots only moments ago. It doesn't mean anything, though. They're always warm. But she was here. She has to have been. I can't be far behind. I pushed on the dots. Not with physical strength. With magic. Just a little. Just enough. The wall parts. Silently, like fog dispersing, a space appears. No one knows who made the passage, and I don't know who found it first. When I arrived at the lake house, there were already three girls here, and it was just a known thing. In this bedroom, there's a wall with old painted polka dots, and in the wall, there's a secret door, and behind the door, there's a tunnel that shouldn't exist, and the tunnel goes down, 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 and you can only open the door with magic. Which means Frank can't open it. We're not allowed outside past sunset, and technically not allowed outside at all without Frank's supervision or permission. 
It's for good reason. If we strayed too far, Frank might not be able to protect us from people who would kill a witch on sight. No going past the tree line, no going out after dark, no going out when Frank's gone. The rules exist for our safety, but we still bend them from time to time. We know all the alarm codes to the doors, but we can't use them to leave when Frank's gone because they keep a record, he'd know. Same if we want to go out at night while he's asleep. So we use the tunnel when we want a better view of the stars, or we want to swim in the lake, or we just want to be out of the house. We never go out alone, and we don't go into the forest. Usually. I close the bricks behind me, and I'm engulfed in darkness. My anxiety is momentarily soothed. I've always found darkness comforting. I touch the wall and push a thin ribbon of magic through the cracks and crevices in the brick. White flowers bloom out of the shadows. The petals open, revealing pistols and stamens that glow as bright as any electric light. The rim of my left ear tingles. Tiny green flowers have sprouted along it in response to my magic. I pull them out absent-mindedly, long since used to the tugging sensation as they release from my skin, and I let my eyes adjust to the flower light. Jane's worry is etched into the walls. When Jane is anxious, she reaches out. She takes hold of whatever she can find and fiddles with it, reshaping it with her magic. There's a toy chest in every bedroom, and hidden deep at the bottom of ours are Jane's favorites, her mutated little darlings. <laughs> Frank took the rest away. For research, he said. No matter how much Jane loved her creations, the research came first. Now here, on the walls of our secret passage, I see the lines her fingers traced. They sank into the wall as her magic leaked out and left it looking like putty. When we went out a couple days ago, the walls were smooth. These marks are new. My heart beats faster. I was right. Jane went this way. I walk. Down, down, down. I keep my fingers in the grooves Jane left. The walls start to take on a wetness. It's humid. The path stops going down and turns, leading me around the lake to the far edge. Finally, the path slopes upward. At the top, I don't meet another brick wall. I meet the hot and humid air of a summer night that has refused to turn cool. There's nothing physically blocking the passage on this side, only an illusion. I'm on the other side of the lake from the house, close to the forest. I can't be seen from the house, not at night. Still, I've never been out here alone. I've never been so aware of the forest, dark and looming, the shadows blending all the trees together into one hulking leviathan. I've never been so aware of the lake, so conscious of what I don't know about, what it, about its depths and what could be lurking in them. There's that subcutaneous anxiety again. It's like the blood in my veins has been objected with helium, and it's all rising up to the surface of me. I, I peer into the water. Violet has a book detailing creatures of the deep. Bioluminescent fish waiting to strike, aquatic dinosaurs that never died but only went into hiding, squids bigger than ships. Violet's book is about the ocean, not a lake, but I still squint into the water for a faint glow or writhing tentacle. Nothing. I swallow hard. The longer I stay, the more I'm sure that some monster could surface. Jane? I follow the edge of the lake. If she was in the tunnel and didn't come back to the house, she has to be out here. The tunnel doesn't let out anywhere else. All I hear is the drone of cicadas. This close to the forest, they're deafening. A pulsing, vibrating hum that's been the ambient noise of summer nights for as long as I can remember. They all go quiet at the same time. My legs jerk like when you're on the edge of sleep and something somewhere misfires. Elle told me what causes it once, but I can never remember what she said. To me, it feels like a last gasp for survival. Your brain mistakes sleep for death, and it desperately, uselessly kicks out into the night. That's how it feels now, wide awake, heart slamming into my ribcage, all at once sure I'm being watched and sure it's by something I'll wish had never noticed me at all. Somewhere in the forest, a branch snaps underfoot. 
I try to call Jane's name, but my throat's gone dry, and whatever took the cicada's voices must have taken mine, too. I dig my nails into my palms and approach the tree line. I haven't been back in the forest since that day. We were never supposed to be there to begin with. The forest is too risky. It's too far from the tunnel, too far to see if Frank has come home early. It's too close to the outside world. But we went in, Jane and I. I swallow, attempting to wet my throat. Jane, I hiss, are you in there? There's no response. The cicadas and Jane keep their silence. I dare to speak a little louder. Jane, we have to go back. Every moment I'm out here, I'm viscerally, good word, aware of Frank and the possibility <laughs> that he'll wake up, do a bed check, and find us missing. Or worse, that a stranger could find us and recognize us for what we are. I'm going to have to go into the forest, aren't I? I swore we'd never go back, but I have to. Step by step, I make my way through the trees. With each step, I breathe a little easier. There's still no Jane, but there's also no blood splattered across the trunks. Just me, bare feet on grass, sweat drying on my skin. There's nothing writhing out of the shadows to get me. Yet. Jane? I hold my breath, trying to hear her above the voice in my head, screaming, Go back! Go back! I don't know what's out here watching me. I don't know why Jane isn't answering. I don't know what the punishment will be if Frank discovers I've been outside. The voice whispers that Jane would want me safe in bed, dirty feet tucked under blankets where Frank can't see, waiting for her to return home. Because there's no other outcome than Jane comes home. A breeze rustles the treetops. I look up. An endless canopy, and beyond it, gently glimmering stars that have no idea my world down here is threatening to fall apart. Someone runs past me on the left, only a few yards away. I run after them, shouting for Jane. The person stops with their back to me. I freeze. We're still separated by a few yards, and they're engulfed in shadows, so I can't see much. The shape is similar to Jane's. The way they stand with one foot in front of the other is one of Jane's quirks. But Jane wouldn't run away from me. Their head moves, turns, just barely to the side. They look like they're made of shadows, but that has to be a visual visual trick. I'm not breathing. I don't want them to see me. I'm overwhelmed with the sense that if they see me, I won't exist anymore. I'll disintegrate or dissolve or disappear. Their head moves a little more, and I take one step back. They look over their shoulder, a flash of yellow, owlish eyes. Like a thunderclap right over my head, every cicada bursts into discordant, vibrating song. I run. And I'll stop there. That, I mean, that first chapter, second chapter now remains a banger. Thank you. Thank you. I really like it. I think I had maybe sometimes too much fun doing spooky imagery and stuff, but I really like it. (laughs) It so, like, it reminds me very distinctly of the opening of the first Tiffany Aching book. I don't know if I have uh, read. The, um, what is it? Uh, the We Free Men, uh, the Pratchett's uh, YA sort of, like, yeah, mostly self-contained within the Discworld series. Yeah. Um, but it has, like, it has some of the same elements that uh, of, like, Tiffany's really into the word susurration in the beginning word. of that. It, I mean, it's a fucking good word. It's a great word. And uh, there's also a lake monster good. at the beginning of that one, which, uh, spoiler alert, she smacks in the face with a frying pan. As she should. As she should, yeah. Tangled taught us all that frying pans are really useful, so. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, like, it is very... Even if you did not mean it as a callback to Tiffany Aching, it's a very delightful callback for me, and... I will accept that, happily. <laughs> I'm, to- I'm totally good with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... One of the questions that I really enjoy asking in these book tours, because this is still Tales from the Trunk, is what is one of your favorite parts you had to leave out of the end product here? Um, probably the mermaids. Um, the original mm-hmm. version of this book, literally, literally even the version I sold had mermaids in it. And on brand, <laughs> that was like a huge part of the plot. One of the main characters was a mermaid, and like one of the big things was just like this relationship between the mermaids and the lake house. And mm-hmm. as much as I loved them, they were crowding the book. Like they were just like they didn't actually fit in with the story mm-hmm. very well. And especially because Derry has so many siblings, it was like everyone was getting lost. And uh-huh. when I when I sold the book, it was my editor my now editor or then editor because she ended up leaving and i have a new editor it's a whole thing publishing is wild um but publishing is so wild we talked about what the book could look like if there weren't mermaids and this was before they Mm -hmm. had bought it and so i wrote a synopsis and 50 pages of the book without mermaids and they bought it and then i spent the next month writing rewriting about two-thirds of the book and Oof. Yeah. I, the wild thing is, I didn't have to do it that quickly, but I did anyway, because I was really mm-hmm. nervous about having an editor for the first time and, like, having a book. So I, I went for it. Um, and I think the book is, like, much better without them in a million ways. It's, like, it's so much stronger. It's so much more focused. Mm-hmm. I'm able to really tighten in on the things that I wanted to have really highly featured in the book. I'm mm-hmm. able to, like make the characters more distinct and like make them have a little more time than they would otherwise but I still miss the mermaids and specifically mm-hmm. I miss the character who uh, his name was Marlo and he was a mermaid and he was a mm-hmm. marshmallow boy and I loved him um, and he was oh I think I remember him yeah like cause the book originally way 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 back when it is not anymore um, though you can, I think you can, you can still see little bones of it. It started as a retelling of the 12 dancing princesses. And mm-hmm. so Marlo was kind of there intending to be like that prince character who's like infiltrating and trying mm-hmm. to like get, get at their secrets and stuff. Um, that's why they have like the secret tunnel and everything, which is kind of the main thing that I think stuck around. Um, yeah. But he was a really sweet little marshmallow boy, and I he had, like, huge anxiety, and <laughs> he was very tender, and I loved him a lot. And maybe I'll use him in another book somewhere else. I hope so, because he was great. Yeah. But, um, the Mermaids and Marlo, I, I sometimes miss a lot. Uh, I would be shocked if you didn't sell a book with mermaids in it. Like, It'll happen. let's be real here. It'll happen eventually. Uh, um, one day. <laughs> yeah. I I kept on, uh, during your reading, just kept on, like, sort of subconsciously feeling callbacks to 
your amazing fireside story crow's eye oh yeah i've had people comment on that before actually i didn't realize it until people were like you sure like writing about lakes and stuff and Uh like the forest and like sibling dynamics and siblings Uh going missing or being hurt and i'm like well when you put it that way yes (laughs) <laughs> yeah um it's i mean part of it's like because um the lake and like foresty areas tend to be based around my best friend in high school at his house um mm-hmm. he uh lived at a house that was like lakeside and had this beautiful forest behind the lake and we hung out there all the time and we were nerd children mm. who were like constantly pretending there were fairies everywhere and just like uh-huh. so it already felt kind of magical there to me and it, it leaks into a lot of the things I write <laughs> but that's fair I mean that that's the reason that like I always have like public transit systems in you know my stories yeah. is like yeah I grew up just like riding the trolley everywhere all the time yeah I think that's like I think there's especially like the stuff you grew up with like they will just kind of find ways to get into your writing uh mm-hmm. Like, the the book I'm working on now is very much kind of, like, um, kind of an ode to, like, Indiana summers and to Mm -hmm. the feeling of, like, driving around Indiana roads. And that thing where you get, like, stuck in a corn maze that never seems to end and there's people dying I was going to say, so corn, right? Yeah, no, there's a big corn maze. There's a big corn maze. (laughs) Corn's a pretty important part of... Indiana in summer. Yeah. <laughs> and in general. When we moved across the country, we we drove from Philadelphia to beautiful Oakland, California. And uh, there was, like, we, you know, we made it through all of Pennsylvania, and then we just hit corn for, like, two days. That sounds right. And it was... Trying to get across... It was a lot. Trying to get across the Midwest. Yep. <laughs> just flat and well it depends on where you are in the midwest there are some less flat parts i grew up it's kind of weird i grew up in a really hilly part of the midwest um Mm -hmm. because indiana at least uh and this is something we were taught in elementary school that i assume is true um is that (laughs) glaciers came down across indiana and flattened it but there Mm. are hills in southern indiana basically, because the glaciers went shwoop and just kind of squished them up. And so I grew up in the hilly part of Indiana. I don't even know if that's nice. true, but that's what we were always taught. I don't even know if that's how glaciers work. I, I'm pretty sure it's how glaciers work. It sounds, sounds true. to me. Like, especially, because I mean, as I was saying it, I was like, it sounds wild that they could push the earth up, but then I was like, it's not like they're moving super fast. It's, yeah. It's one of those, like, gradual... <laughs> and, like, there is just, like, a lot of mass there. Yeah. And Indiana also has, like, weird... The makeup of our ground is kind of, like, weird. Like, we don't get earthquakes or anything here, but if they if there are earthquakes mm-hmm. literally, like, anywhere nearby. I have felt small earthquakes that were in Kentucky because Indiana is all limestone. It's just... That is wild. Limestone all the way up. And tremors move very, very well <laughs> through, lime, through limestone. <laughs> so you, if there's, if the few times there have been like tiny earthquakes in Kentucky or Indiana, you feel it everywhere. <laughs> oh man. And like the East coast doesn't, or uh, the Midwest, I guess for you just doesn't really know how to deal with 
earthquakes. We have earthquake drills in school. Like, we we have drills for everything in school. Like, we have fire drills. We have tornado mm-hmm. drills. We have earthquake drills. Code blues, which are active shooter drills, because those were happening even when I was a child, and the world is depressing. Yep. Um, at one elementary school I went to, we had drills. Our My school was next to, like, some kind of plant, like, some kind of, like, paper plant or, like, sewage. or I don't know. It, it was some kind of, like... <laughs> plant like factory kind of thing and Mm -hmm. we had a drill for just in case something ever went really wrong and like toxic stuff was released we had a drill Uh for going over to the fairgrounds across the street (laughs) and away from the school have some sort of airborne toxic event yeah we had drills for everything yeah our tornado our, our earthquake drills were always they would like play like a sound almost like over like the speakers and we would all hide under our desks and that was it. But the only... Fantastic. Er- Duck and cover. <laughs> got it. Got it. The only... I mean, literally, yeah. It was just like, this works for earthquakes. This works for nuclear bombs. This works for everything. <laughs> Frankly, it could probably work for a tornado, depending on where your desk is. <laughs> um, but uh, the only earthquake I've ever actually felt, I was sleeping on an air mattress. And I remember waking up because it was shaking. And I was like, what? is happening right now and I didn't understand so I went back to sleep and then the next morning everyone was like did you feel the earthquake so it didn't really do me a lot of good luckily we don't tend to get big earthquakes over here because that I think would be pretty bad yeah Uh, not yet anyway we'll see I guess the last one that I felt we were just sitting at the dinner table and uh, I just like looked over because I thought that my spouse was just like jiggling her leg really (laughs) intensely and she looked at me and she was like that's an earthquake and I'm like oh okay that makes more sense oh my god I can't fathom living in a place that like fairly regularly gets even small earthquakes but also (laughs) I know that like my sister and her wife live out in California and whenever they come to Indiana to visit, they're always hoping for a thunderstorm. They are always, always hoping for a thunderstorm because they don't get them where they live in California. Um, yep. They live in, like, Riverside. And um, somewhere in there. I don't know. My, every time there's anything that happens in California, my mom's like, Jessica, are you okay? And Jessica's like, my county is as big as Indiana. <laughs> yeah. That was... That was- an entire Indiana away from me. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it was in Riverside County, but it was not anywhere near me, even a little bit. Yeah. But they're always praying for thunderstorms because they don't get them there, whereas I'm like, yeah, thunderstorms, like, that's just... Thunderstorms and... S- we get everything else. We don't get earthquake, but we get thunderstorms yep. and snow and everything else, except move. for, like, hurricanes. <laughs> which I'm fine yeah. with. Just move east, and then you'll get Everything. everything, everything except the earthquakes. And, well, the, tor- the tornadoes will start to peter off. Yeah, yes, that's true. And I do appreciate that, but you then you'll yeah. get the hurricanes. Yeah. So it's like a trade-off. Uh, it, it, it's a it, everything's a trade-off. Yeah, pretty much anywhere west, and you get no thunderstorms, no hurricanes, but you get earthquakes and fire season. Yeah, I'm okay being without fire. Honestly, I love I, every time I visited California, I've been like, I love it here. Like, this is great. I love this. I love, like, it's such a cliche for people to be like, um, 
that when it's hot, they'll be like, it's the humidity that gets you. But I've been to California, and mm-hmm. I can confirm, having gone from Indiana to California, it is the humidity that gets you. Because in California, yeah. I can walk around Disneyland all day in 85-degree heat or 90-degree heat and just be like, I'm doing fine. This doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> in Indiana, it's 77 degrees, and I'm dead. So yeah. it's a difference. But I don't know about the earthquakes and the fire season. Yeah. Those... It, are rough. <laughs> it feels very on brand that we just devolved into talking about natural disasters. I love like, natural disasters. And like <laughs> Um So great segue. Speaking about things that you love. Um the other important question I have to ask about your book yes. is without giving too much away, what is your favorite thing you got to keep in this book? Oh man. Or one of your favorites. Yeah, because, like, my favorite thing is, like, a line that is spoilery, so I won't go with that one, but I'm really happy because it's been there since the first draft, and it managed, like, that... Nice. I don't... I'm sure every other thing has, like, changed. <laughs> I think the only lines from the first draft that are, like, exactly the same as they were, uh, they're still exactly the same as they were, are probably that Jane is gone from the beginning of the mm-hmm. second chapter, and then a line in, like, the second to last chapter. Those are probably the... Well... Oof. No, there's some more lines in that second to last chapter. Oh, man, that's a really good part. Okay. Uh, I can't, though. That's a that's a big spoilery part. So, yeah. Uh, that, I won't, I, I can't talk about that. So, what's a part from earlier in the book? <laughs> um, man. Sorry, I'm, I'm not, my, now my brain is trying to work through every draft of the book. <laughs> and I haven't actually read the full book since, like, publishing is so slow so it's been a while since mm-hmm. i was doing any sort of like line editing or final passes or anything yeah so it's like man what what is in the final draft of the book um that i i mean i love pretty much all of it i think one thing actually that i love that i it was in the second chapter but i kind of skipped it because um i was trying to keep it like a little tighter for reading purposes Mm-hmm. Um, but that I'm happy is there because it comes up extremely rarely, but it's a little character thing that makes me really happy is that Olivia, who's one of the little twins, she has a pet beetle that she keeps Aww. in a little terrarium under her bed. They're not technically allowed to have pets. So she just has this little terrarium where she keeps Gabriel, who's this big black beetle. And um, he doesn't show up like super a lot in the book or anything because there's not really a way mm-hmm. for him to. But he's just another little... She loves animals, and she can't have a cat mm-hmm. or a dog or anything, so she has a beetle. And I... Sometimes I always... I was always kind of worried someone would suggest cutting it because it's, like, not <laughs> really, like, plot important in any way. But mm-hmm. personally, I love I love him, and I think he, like... To me, he adds a lot to her character. It's like, I feel like I understand this tiny child who is, like, my mm-hmm. best friend is my sister and this beetle. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I love and support the Beatle. I love him very much. I I have, like, ideas for potential, like, follow-ups. Not direct sequels, but, like, follow-ups to Mm -hmm. the book that I would like to write one day. We'll see. Um, Buy this book and maybe I'll get to. Um, Listeners, you know your job. um, Where I would maybe focus in a little more sometimes on Little Twins. And I... Well, it's... The ideas I have are set a little bit in the future, so I guess I don't know how long beetles live. I'd have to look that up. <laughs> I mean, they're magic twins. Like, the beetle you know, can just live. Could, you know what? Good point. <laughs> I could make that work. 
I just leave. Like I have, I have no idea about the lifespan of insects other than like fruit flies living a day. And yeah. Depends on the thing. Yeah. I know the smaller it is, the faster it tends to die. But like a big beetle. I don't know. You know. If you told me that big beetles live like five years, I would be like, that oh, seems right. That seems yeah. accurate. I mean, how s- centipedes can live for seven years? That's terrible. I wish you hadn't told me that. <laughs> there are first graders as old as a house centipede. Yeah, I don't, I don't like that. I'm just going to go on Twitter after this and ask Preemie how long beetles live. <laughs> and then she'll either tell me facts or she'll tell me... Haven't figured it out yet. I want to be facts. And... <laughs> Well, I can tell you facts um, about house centipedes. <laughs> <laughs> They've just got too many legs. They, yeah. Just too many goddamn legs. It's, it, it, I have a truce with the house centipedes in my apartment, which is the first place I ever saw house centipedes, but we have a few around here. And I have a truce with them that if they never show themselves to me, then we are fine. And sometimes I'll walk into the bathroom and there will be one on the wall and I'll just turn around and leave and I'll give it like 20 <laughs> minutes and when I go back in, they'll be gone. And I'll be like, we're, we're making it work. And some of them are really little uh-huh. and that's kind of nice, but there's one that's just... that. Like that, I'm like, that's probably a seven-year-old. That guy's huge. Yeah. <laughs> and got too many legs. <laughs> Oof. Um... So, Sarah, before we go, uh, one question I've started asking, and I just really like the answers to it, is what's something that you are super pumped up about that you want to tell people about other than your own book? Which, obviously, we are all very pumped for A Dark and Starless Forest. As you should be. Um, there's so many things I'm really pumped about, actually. But the first thing I thought of, I need to get the author's name really quick. Because I know that I'm I'm so bad sometimes at remembering names, even when it's, like, someone that I follow. Oh, mood. Um, I just don't. Um, I just read This Poison Heart by Kaylin Bayron. Um, Ooh. Oh, my God. It is so good i knew it was going to be good like i bought it because i was like this looks amazing but it's like mm-hmm. so good i mean just look i mean if you, even if you just go look at the cover the cover is so beautiful and it's about this um girl this teen girl who can grow plants basically so it's like i mean i'm, I'm like it's kind of similar to like dairy except not at all because dairy just kind of grows random shit and this girl mm-hmm. can grow like real stuff and she is really into plants and she knows everything about them and she inherits a giant estate from her biological aunt because she's adopted and her biological mother died Mm -hmm. a long time ago and her aunt died and left her this estate and uh, as you might imagine things get weird but it's just so 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 good Um, it ends in a cliffhanger that murdered me but um, but definitely like buy it so that the second one could happen because <laughs> I mm-hmm. need it personally <laughs> it was so good um, if not for yourself listeners buy this to make Sarah happy yes exactly it's your job do it for me everything I can think of is like stuff I'm excited about definitely is like books because I'm looking at like the books around me and I'm like I also just read 
the ones we're meant to find that one was mm. beautiful it made me very nervous about climate things but so does everything <laughs> each of us a desert by by marco shiro which ruined me absolutely they both oh did. my god and incidentally because you mentioned preemie i have a broken darkness right here also the sequel yes. to her first book which is suddenly why is the name out of my head i loved that book and i can't remember the name of it now oh no is it on the cover oh, uh please i'm so embarrassed now beneath, beneath the rising, rising. <laughs> Yes. Beneath the Rising, which is in- also incredible. So incredible. weird. Like, in a really good way. Like, in that way where I'm like, I want people to write more weird shit like this. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's got, like, that annihilation feel of, like, being just... It's so beautifully, unsettlingly strange. And, like, for the joy of it. Like, just because, like, you can tell that she just loves writing weird shit. And it mm-hmm. shows. It, like, comes through. And it's a delight to read. Um, yeah. And so is A Broken Darkness. So um, those are three, four, five, I guess I technically mentioned five books. That Five books. And while we're at it, uh, listeners, if I haven't already convinced you enough in the last month, pick up Premie's new novella, Out from Neon Hemlock, and What Can We Offer You Tonight? Incredible. Uh, pick up. Deeply, powerfully unsettling and just very very good pick up anything preemie writes <laughs> that's just yeah, my suggestion pick up anything preemie writes. <laughs> she's just and a really good writer <laughs> she is and pick up a dark and starless forest pre-order it even because pre-orders are how you show authors that you love them and we love sarah thanks <laughs> uh a dark and starless forest will be out september 20th 14th 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 okay I knew it was one of those. There, yeah. I just couldn't remember. Time is fake. Time is complete. Who knows? No, don't worry. It really feels fake to me that it's so close. It's also my niece's birthday. So that's two Happy things. Happy birthday, Sarah's niece. <laughs> Celebrate by picking up a copy of A Dark and Starless Forest. Which she is way too young for. Preferably from your local independent bookstore or yes. wherever else you buy fine books. There's also, uh, there is an Sarah- audiobook, too. So by the I, I'm really excited. I love audiobooks. Get it. <laughs> Get it, get it, get it. Uh, listeners. <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Sarah, where can listeners find you? Everywhere. Um, <laughs> I am... Right behind you. Probably. <laughs> I am primarily, unfortunately, on Twitter. Um, <laughs> at Sarah Hollowell. I am trying, not very hard, but attempting to be more of an Instagram person, which is at SM Hollowell. Uh, I have a website, sarahollow.com. Those are the main places you can find me, um, and hopefully also in bookstores. I don't know. Yes. I don't know how it actually works in terms of books being in stores. I don't know how that works. I'm hoping mine will be. I don't. Know. I think. I I mean, every bookstore I've been in recently where I could have a conversation with a bookseller and it made sense, I told them to make sure they got a copy of your book. Thank so you. like. Thank you. That's a big... If you have a relationship with a bookseller, make sure they buy Sarah's book. Yeah. And or also request it at your library. Also request it at your library. Libraries are a very valid way to get books. I love libraries. It still helps authors because libraries buy a lot of books. They buy a lot of books and then those books are in front of a lot of people. <laughs> yes. Okay. Sarah, thank you so, so much for joining us once again on the show. It's been... 
I think, even more of a pleasure this time than last time because I actually know what I'm doing with a podcast <laughs> this time. I, I think... still don't. <laughs> I mean, I've done, like, 50 or 60 of these now. Like, you... that's that's a grip. Yeah, you're, you're, getting, you're and... getting used to it. <laughs> yeah, the, the first time... We recorded, I think, was the second podcast I'd ever recorded. Oh so, gosh. like... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. That sounds right. Because didn't you start kind of with, like, a Sarah double feature? I did. I started with uh, Sarah Gailey, good, good friend of the show. Also, buy their books. Always. Buy all Sarah's books. Any book by a Sarah. Just, like, if you see a Sarah, <laughs> buy their books. Almost guaranteed to be great. Yes. Uh... Yeah, no, we we started out with a Sarah double feature, and then uh, good friend of the show, R.K. Duncan, and then uh, Kate Leckler, I think, was was the next... The first guest after my, like, pilot, like, I'm going to build this buffer of shows and figure out how to actually podcasts. I mean, listen, it's a good start. Like, that's a nice, like... It's a great start. That's a real like, good selection. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you again so, so much. It's been a pleasure. It is uh, a gift. And I am very much looking forward to getting your amazing Fat Girl Fantasy in my grubby little hands. I also am excited for both you to have it and everyone to have it, and also for me to have it, because I don't have my copies yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're coming. They're supposedly on the way. You're just gonna get a crate of books. I hope so. <laughs> okay. All right. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Ryan Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbisniex. If you like the show... Consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. <laughs> <laughs>